My name is Dr. Gerard McLean. I work with WellSource and Lifelong Health. Lifelong Health is a subsidiary of WellSource. Lifelong Health is basically what uh, we repackage products in WellSource that we use for the corporations, and we repackage them in a format for churches and health ministry leaders to use. We call that Lifelong Health. I've been teaching this eight weeks to wellness class for over 10 years. Over 2,500 people have come through as trainers just like you. I call, we call this the train the, the train the trainer class because you're here primarily not to learn about eight weeks to wellness, but you're here to learn how to do eight weeks to wellness for who you want to minister to. Is that correct? Well, that's the general theme of this class. Many of you, or some of you, will not do an eight weeks of wellness class, and that's fine. Most of you will do an eight weeks of wellness class. We have a number of physicians who require their patients to all take the eight weeks to wellness class. So that's how popular it is within the medical community. And we have many, many pastors. How many of you are pastors today? Many, many pastors who will teach this or co-teach it with other members of their congregation for their constituents. Why are we doing health ministry? Why should a church be involved in health work? Is that, uh, is that focus for you? Is this something we should be doing today? Turns out that um, our church is pretty much the only church that gets involved in health ministry the way we define it. There are many churches. Uh, I might uh, think about Sister Teresa, uh, M uh, Mother Teresa, who did um, relief, medical relief work, but it was usually end-stage kinds of things, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need Mother Teresa's. We need those individuals. But there's much we can do way before those end-stage kinds of issues show up, and this is kind of what we're talking about now. So what's the rationale for health ministry? Oh, sorry, can't dance. <laughs> Jesus chose to work by ministering to the needs of the people first. When did Jesus ask his people to follow him? After he did something for them, usually. We're not right? He healed them, and then he bade them follow me. So Jesus devoted more time to healing the sick than he did to preaching. Now, I got nothing wrong with preaching. We got some great preachers in our church. And uh, there's a blessing in that, of course. But we need to be ever mindful that Jesus, too, did health ministry. And he did health ministry first. This is one reason why our great evangelists incorporate health ministry into their presentations as well. I've been part of a number of evangelistic series where we do health ministry. 
Of course, I'm trying to get more than 10 minutes because the pastor's got 35. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay. His miracles testify to the truth of his words that he came not to destroy but to save. And you see that reference down there, Ministry of Healing. I urge you to read Ministry of Healing. It is a textbook. In fact, we were required to read it when we were at Loma Linda University School of Public Health. It was one of our textbooks. There are other books, and they're, they're compilations of all the writings that Ellen White has shared with us on health. Ministry of Healing is a textbook, okay? What you can take out of that, con that book, though, is please read it in the context that it was written and translate pieces of it in the context that we need to hear about today. Because things have changed a little bit in the last 150 years, but there's great and wonderful principles in that book, and we can incorporate them into today. All right? Not everyone feels the need of spiritual help. You know that, don't you? I didn't say they don't need spiritual help. They don't feel the need for spiritual help. Everybody needs spiritual help. But many don't feel the need. But everyone universally is pretty much concerned about their health. And they're especially concerned about their health when they begin to lose their health. I call that a teachable moment. There was vast crowds brought to Jesus for healing. The lame, the blind, the crippled. They laid them before Jesus, and he never said, do you go to church on Sabbath before he healed them? He never asked them if they smoked cigarettes before he healed them. He never asked them if they chewed betel nut or drank alcohol before he healed them. There's a mobile health van screening in rural communities. They reached out to almost 15,000 people every year. All were invited to take further material on health, including Bible studies. Each week, 30 to 50 people requested Bible study material. We've got some wonderful health ministries going on around the country. I'm not suggesting you need to do that, but that is an example of what can be done. Many hospitals have developed a van ministry to go out. We used to do coronary risk screenings, and many people do it now still. In this particular example, over 800 people signed up. Besides the personal contact during the screening, there was a two-hour evaluation covered, which covered eating habits and exercise and not smoking. We used to call this the heartbeat program. Now, that's kind of gone away, but we do many different programs instead of that. And it's an opportunity to touch and hold and interact with your ministry, in your, with your population in your area of expertise. 
What is the best way to tell people what God is like? Why not demonstrate to him what he's like? Rather than telling, telling, telling all the time. One way is to preach a sermon. And there's some great sermons I've heard. But some people would never step foot in a church to hear a sermon. You can demonstrate God's love by action by taking their blood pressure. Christ's way of presenting truth cannot be improved upon. He went about doing good. And by this good he accomplished by his loving words and kindly deeds, he interpreted the gospel to men and women. This is a quotation from Ellen White. It's from Councils on Health. That's one of those books that's a compilation of sayings throughout all the writings. Ministry of Health is a textbook. The others are compilations of her writings. Medical ministry can and should be a, a work or a part of every work of every church. I believe it should be part of every church and every hospital in our land. Our hospitals and medical clinics are so busy taking care of acute care needs. But they can also be doing health ministry as well. When I was in um, Hinsdale Hospital, every place I've worked at, I've developed a lifestyle medicine program. Back then, we used to call it health promotion. Those of us with doctors took it into the lifestyle medicine area where we worked with physicians and nurses and we really took it to another level. I've done it at Hinsdale Hospital in Chicago, uh, Youngberg Adventist Hospital in Singapore, uh, Bangkok Adventist Hospital in Thailand, and the Guam SDA Medical Clinic in, in Guam. And I was surrounded by wonderful acute care practitioners who realized they didn't have the time to share the principles to lower blood pressure, or how to stop smoking, or the principles of how to lose weight. They were excellent clinicians to diagnose that blood pressure and treat that blood pressure with medicine. But they struggled with, if these people would just exercise more, or lose a little bit of weight, or eat less of the harmful fats and more of the good fats, their blood pressure would come down, and they either wouldn't need as much medicine, or they would need no medicine, depending on how well their body adapted to the good things that now that were happening to them, versus all the life things that are happening that cause the blood pressure to raise, or the weight to gain, or whatever was going on. You have to be very careful about presenting health ministry to get people off drugs, because that's the wrong reason. We need drugs. Those are powerful miracles of medicine. Because some people won't, are so afraid of the drugs, they won't take them. But when they're prescribed properly, they save our lives. 25 to 30% of us will develop high blood pressure and we don't smoke, we're not overweight, and we get lots of exercise. Do you think that person needs to take a drug to help with that high blood pressure? Oh, but you don't want the side effects. Well, what's the side effect of high blood pressure? Stroke and or death. So if your body is not responding to the exercise and the stress reduction and the good food, and the not smoking, and you still got high blood pressure, 
you're probably a very good candidate for some pharmaceutical assistance. I've had folks in my class, oh, no, I can't take drugs. Well, I've educated them along the way to understand the side effects of no drugs versus the drugs. And you have, to, you have to balance this all out, OK? I strongly believe in the benefits of exercise and good food to help lower blood pressure. But there are some people who need some additional help. Don't be afraid to work with your physicians and nurses to take that next step as well. Not every church can have a hospital or medical clinic, but every church can have a place where people can learn to live well. Our churches should be refuges. So that's one of the purposes of this health, North American Division Health Ministry. Eight Weeks to Wellness was the first class that was taught over 10 years ago as part of this NAD Health Emphasis Week. And it's just a good class. It's kind of stood the test of time. It's, it stayed, but it's no better than any all the others are out there. It's a really excellent, good introduction to the overall concept of health ministry. Where we used to have one, now we have 31 or so. And I would urge you to, to take eight weeks of wellness. And the next year, take another one. I would urge you to put in your budgets $500 or $1,000 every year to add to your health ministry tool chest so that you can always do a health eight weeks to wellness as a really good introduction. But then if you've got some folks who realize I've got diabetes, you might want to take the diabetic mastery program and bring it in. Or you might want to do a smoking or tobacco cessation program. Or you might want to do a weight management program. So there's many options. In Palm Springs, when Dr. Hall and I were at Loma Linda University, we did some ministry in Palm Springs. And we started with the health screenings. We did blood pressure. We did coronary risk. This is duplicated in many churches in the last 30 years, all over North America, all over the world, really. Did some weight control programs in a local church there in um, um, southwest Washington State. We started some health screenings, did some health classes, and then invited all to attend an evangelistic series. There's nothing wrong with that. Some have called the health ministry uh, the entering wedge. And, and that's OK. I don't object to that at all. I think they should go hand in hand. It was Jesus' mission to bring to men and women complete restoration. He came to give them health and peace and perfection of character. Now, I do believe that we have health that we can share. But without accepting the universal um, injunction of lifelong eternity, spirituality, we can't really achieve wholeness in a man or a woman. So if all we do is teach them to stop smoking, what's the next step? But getting to that next step, you have to realize some people are still not interested in that. And that's where we can pray, and we can still show by example and lead them that way.
Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and won their confidence. Then and only then did he bade them follow me. So Christ, in effect, did health ministry first, and then he did the gospel ministry. They hand in hand. I might add, I forgot to mention, this is in a written form in your textbook here. Um, under section one, about halfway through section one. One of our churches just south of where we live and work in Portland, one lady was invited by her non-church member husband to attend. Um, this lady's husband didn't want to go to church, didn't like go to church, but he had an interest in health. So he wanted to know more about health and nutrition. He liked what he heard and he attended every meeting. He became a vegetarian. He started attending church. <laughs> a year later he was baptized, went back to college, took theology, and now he's an ordained minister. And this is a guy who would not go to church. He wanted nothing to do with the spiritual component of that church. But he had a health need. Another church in San Bernardino held a health series once a week for eight weeks. A hundred people attended. One lady commented, I've lived in the shadow of this church for 15 years, but this is the first time I've ever been inside the church. I often say we are the best kept secret in the western suburbs. Why had she never visited the church before? She was afraid of those weird people who do camp meetings and put tents on their lawn. <clears throat> She wasn't interested in spirituality, but she had a health need. When they come to us and, and understand more about health and realize that we're normal, happy, healthy people, then they'll begin to think there might be something to know about the God that they worship. And oftentimes it's the same God they worship, it's just a different interpretation of that God because it's a different church they attend. Or if they attend no church, they still understand there's a God. But maybe they've never been represented by their parents or friends, a God of love, a God of health. In every community, there are large numbers who do not listen to the preaching of God's word or attend any religious service. For whatever reason, they're afraid, they're turned off, they're disillusioned. Often the relief of physical needs is the only avenue by which they can be approached. Yes. Ah, that's a good question. I know they really would in many places, but some not so much. 
Dr. Hall went to Australia and he communicated with a number of Australian brethren. And many people in Australia are not interested in religious matters. The churches have a very hard time reaching their communities with religious programs. When they tried health screening and education, however, they had good attendance. Do you know in Australia, there's a, there's a health food ministry called Sanitarium, and they sell more breakfast foods than Post and Kellogg's together all around the world. Some of the sanitarium products are available in the US and Canada as well. So while Kellogg's and Post, we think, invented breakfast foods, sanitarium sells more around the world than both of them combined. So they've got a strong emphasis in the health food ministry. And did you know that's owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church? That for-profit business brings in, I think they brought in $34 million and gave it to the church last year, or over a series of years. I forget that little detail. Now, that's a good thing. And that allows the church throughout the whole South Pacific area to be vigorous in presenting the gospel and health message. Church members were delighted to see something finally working to reach their communities. So take to your board, get your pastors involved, get approval and teach this to fellowship, to interact with your church members. And don't forget about your church members, I might add. This isn't just for community. Do you mind if I say we need this message just as much as the church members who aren't as members in your community who don't attend your church? Can I say that and still smile at each other and be friends with each other? We need it just as well. Pleasant Valley Church. This is a church I attend in Oregon. And one of our great evangelistic campaigns back in Net 98, we mailed out, or they mailed out, 4,500 invitations. Two people came. How much did it cost you to mail out 4,500 invitations? Okay, those are, some, those are some serious evangelistic dollars. A few months later, a mailing was made to the same people for this very same eight weeks to wellness ser series of classes, and 12 people came. Okay? Well, 12 is not a lot. You know, that's a whole lot more than two. And they've been attending along with 20 to 30 church members. Okay? I've seen this repeated all over. In fact, in Pastor Cotter's church in Harrisburg, we did, um, they did a follow-up after that, and they did a once-a-month vegetarian fiesta, or a vegetarian meal. And I've done this in half a dozen churches. I did this in Guam. We used the governor's mansion in Guam, and just like we did with Pastor Cotter, they advertised it, and he got a bunch of ladies and a few men to prepare a bunch of healthy food. 
I would come in, I was the MC, and I would do a medical lecture. We had some special music. Uh, be sure it is good music. <laughs> okay. And then we had a meal, and some, my wife or one of the ladies would come out, come out and do a, a brief food demonstration on something. Then we have Q&A, and everybody would go home. And guess what? We charged people to attend. You charged, I can't remember, 750. I've had churches charge as little as six and as much as 12. How many people attended your vegetarian seminars? 70 to 160. In Guam, we routinely had 120 people coming to our vegetarian fiesta. We even had the news media coming and filmed us one time because they heard we were turning away people and you couldn't come in. Well, we turned away people because of the fire regulations. <laughs> Not that we didn't want them to be there. And once I re-educated the news report, you know how that is. You know, they, they, they hear something. I re-educated the news. I was on the news and I was on the TV all over Guam. I couldn't walk around anywhere and say, oh, you're that vegetarian doctor. <laughs> sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad, the way they were sharing their opinion with me. But that's all right. So why should a church be involved in health ministry? Oh, there's a church in Detroit, area, Detroit Michigan area. I think it's Detroit. They do a once-a-year vegetarian fiesta. I forget what they call it. They rent the local school gymnasium. They take tickets. They have well over 800 to 1,000 people attend this, and they turn people away from the door. People buy a table, they come in there and they present food, and it's like a, um, you walk around and, a tasting. They walk around and taste food from all different flavors, cultures, countries, and they gotta turn people away. I think they charge $12, you gotta buy a ticket six months in advance. Something like that, it's incredible. When you make good food that tastes good, people will come. So if you want to reach out to our communities, maybe we should be effective if we use, we would be more effective if we use Christ's methods. A health ministry can and will reach many people more than any other approach. It demonstrates to the community that what the gospel means and what God is really like. Compassionate, forgiving, loving, and eager to restore physically and spiritually. Our own members will benefit as they share the message of health and abundant life with others. So they understand the principle. How close do you have to get to someone when you take their blood pressure? And you've got to hold that arm, put their hand right here, look them in the eye, take that blood pressure, and then respond to that blood pressure. I've done treadmill exams on patients when I'm working in the medical clinics. And there are some patients that come in with blood pressures, 240 over 120. We don't do, blood we don't do treadmill exams on those individuals. But they didn't know they had high blood pressure. A lot of folks don't know they have high blood glucose. So these are easy tests that you can do, and you can work with your community. 
Okay, let's talk about this lifestyle. So you can hand this out and have your participant check the box that describes you, add the scores in B and C, and then you, you, you get a total score. And at the bottom of the page, we can get it a, 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 an objective measure of your lifestyle score. Now we, for our corporate folks that we work with, we have a very sophisticated 17-point scale on a scale of 0 to 100. And we give folks a, a score of anywhere from you know, 0 to 100. A lot of times they get 50s, 60s. And we don't consider you healthy until you have a score of 80 or above. In this particular section, 6 to 9 is doing well. 10 to 12 is excellent. So your goal is to get to 10. That's the goal here. So I'm not going to do a survey and ask you what your scores were. But the point is, the more healthy choices that you fail to make, you'll be closer to 0, 5, 6, correct? And the more positive, healthy choices that you do make, you'll be closer to 9, 10, 11, and 12. So all of our evaluations we have, we put together a score based on one or two scientific evidence, scientific principles that we've, we've learned about. And this is basically from the information from the Cancer Prevention Study and the Bellock and Breslow uh, Good Health Practices Study. And we might throw in some stuff we know from the Adventist Health Study. And then we create an instrument that we can use to objectively measure your health. So why do we look at the Cancer Prevention Study and ask some, smoke, ask some questions about cancer? Well. Looking at over 350,000 um, women, um, 200,000 men, ages throughout middle age. Notice that middle age is still 69. <clears throat> Isn't that a good thing? And there are four independent lifestyle behaviors were studied. So we asked the question, do you smoke cigarette? What is your activity level? What about your fruit and vegetable? Do you think fruits and vegetables make us healthy? Yes. yes. Lots of scientific evidence. That's also why the US Surgeons General, for the last 30 years and now, is, is recommending that we eat more fruits and vegetables. One thing they're not, well, they, they, they used to not say, eat less meat. But now they're also saying that as well. But the point is, I didn't care about years ago when they wouldn't say eat less meat. I didn't care about that. Well, I'm a vegetarian. That's fine. I wasn't concerned about you being a vegetarian. If you're eating nine servings of fruits and vegetables, three or four servings of whole grains, how much room do you have left in your stomach for cow? I don't care how much cow you eat if you eat fruits and vegetables and cereal grains and nuts and seeds. I don't care how much chicken you eat, because you're not going to eat very much at all if you're eating fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains. You see what I'm saying? Now, we take it a little bit farther, and many of us become vegetarian. I don't even like that word. I like a 
eating more plant-based dietary, okay? Eating more natural. Well, sure, the cow's natural. <laughs> sort of. You ever been to a feedlot lately? <laughs> well, we'll get into that later. And, and uh, obesity. So these four risk factors are measured. Do these impact your ability to live long or live less? How about if you live long but you don't feel good for the last 20 years? Do you think these impact that last 20 years? So we ask questions about these things. Smoking. Do you want to have the lowest probability of dying or the highest probability of dying? So those that never smoke have a much lower probability of dying than those who currently smoke. Today we hardly ever talk about smoking because being a non-smoker is more common today than being a tobacco user, right? In fact, you can't even be part of a public gathering anymore and have anybody smoke without the rest of the population getting a little aggravated about those smokers. I remember going to university classes in Canada and if a smoker came in and sat in the classroom, which was totally acceptable, I vigorously, with gusto and as much noise as I could make, would move away from the smoker because I was an evangelist. <laughs> I don't know if that helped, but I do know for a fact you could no longer smoke in any university classroom. The administration eventually got the message. But it was part of legislation, part of a societal goal to live and work and eat and play in a non-smoking environment. So we know about smoking. We don't spend too much time on that anymore. Uh, body weight. This is where we kind of forget about this, you know. We, we kind of don't worry about this. Um, those that have optimal weight have lower risk of dying in middle age compared to those who are obese. And overweight gets a little bit of increase. But I'm not actually concerned about this group at all. There are some studies that when we're 80 and 90, that if we are overweight, we're actually healthier. Why? Because we got reserves for dealing with those colds and flus and nasty bugs that come along. Okay? And we've got lots of studies that the overweight exerciser, who may have already lost 80 pounds, is just as healthy as the optimal weight. Okay. This is where we as a church fall down in this obese ca category. Okay. Since I'm being recorded, I can't say what I really want to say. Okay. Our wonderful church brethren. They work 
tremendously a lot. And food is a comfort, and I understand that. I do understand that. But it's not necessarily a good representation of our church as a whole. But this is where we can catch up. Okay? And we've got a wonderful church program now called In Step for Life. We developed that for the church. WellSource developed that for the church and gave it to the church. Okay, it was a very nice, sophisticated um, uh, computer program that we gave to the church because of our, really, our belief that our church and our church members need to have a mechanism to be encouraged to exercise more. So those who exercise heavy and moderate have much lower risk of dying than those who get slight or no exercise. Okay? Now we're here in this wonderful city of St. Mary, a suburb of Orlando. How many of you walked, ran, or swam to this city last week to arrive at this wonderful convention? <laughs> Did anybody? Shame on you. So you sat in some conveyance and got no exercise to arrive at this wonderful exercise-oriented convention. You know, the fact is, this is the kind of society we live in. I'm picking on you because I'm picking on me. It's the society we live in. How many of us hire a gardener to take care of our yard work when we could do it ourselves? but we're too busy to do it ourselves. And I understand that. In fact, my next house that my wife and I buy might be a condominium where there's no more yard work left to do. <laughs> but we like doing the yard work, and we love looking at the flowers. I don't do weeds. My wife does that or when I can beat my kids to do it. <laughs> Actually, all my kids are bigger than me, and I can't do that anymore, <laughs> aside from it being against the law, I'm told. So this is where we can make a huge difference in our health. In fact, when we talk about the exercise slide, the exercise uh, section after lunch, exercise is the single most important risk factor you can add being active is more important than stopping use of tobacco. I didn't just say it's okay to use tobacco. I want to make that perfectly clear. All right. There was a question over here somewhere. Yes. Yeah, women are just more stubborn. No, I got to. <laughs> no. Um, Th th those are the facts. That's very true. And um, um, I don't have a good reason for that. Okay? Smoking and exercise. Those that get heavy exercise, okay, and those that get no exercise, 
and a smoker still get benefit, okay? Exercise. Exercise still lowers the risk, even if you're a smoker. Smoking. See, this is for men. The last one was for women, right? Now, this is where we can get really excited again. There's good things in fruits and vegetables. Does anybody know what they are? Doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a whole host of vitamins and minerals, and there's thousands of antioxidants, and the scientists are vigorously trying to figure out what it is so they can put it in a pill, and someone might buy it and take it. It doesn't matter. Eat fruits and vegetables. As close to the natural state as possible. Let me make this perfectly clear. The apple pie is not a fruit. <laughs> it pains me to say that. The pumpkin pie is not a vegetable. That's my favorite. It just pains me to say that. So those that eat the highest volume of fruits and vegetables, uh, sorry, those that eat the uh, the, um, the first quintile, or the lowest number of fruits and vegetables, have the highest. Those that eat the highest number of fruits and vegetables have the lowest probability of dying. And this has been borne out in study after study, in the Adventist Health Study, in the Harvard Health Study, the HERO Study, the Good Health Practices Study, all over the world. And it doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what cultural foods are favorite for you. Fruits and vegetables. We've traveled in over 44 countries. We've lived in four countries. And every country has fruits and vegetables. Okay. In fact, some have some different ones. The vegetables are pretty much the same all over the world. But the fruits, some countries have some awesome fruits, especially the mangoes. We, we don't have good mangoes in America. Because by the time they get here, they're, you know, when we lived in Thailand, there were five different kinds of mangoes. Wonderful sweet ones and some solid crispy ones. And um, then there was durian. I don't know if you know anything about durian. You ever heard of durian? Yeah. It's the worst fruit in the world. <laughs> and it's actually one of the best tasting when you get used to it. It's amazing. They call that the king of the fruits. And you know, there's some kind of male connotation to that. You've got to learn to like that male fruit. It takes time and effort to understand a man. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know. But the mangosteen is called the queen of the fruits. And everybody loves the queen. Everybody loves the queen. And the, a baby could eat the queen. And it's just, it's just, there's nothing wrong with that fruit. So what I learned from this little story is it takes an effort to like a man, but everybody likes a woman. 
and, and, and maybe there's something to that. I don't know. But it took me three tries to like this durian. I could smell a durian truck past me and, oh, I need to go get some of that. It was awesome, wonderful. My American friends who would visit me would just get sick when they smell a delicious durian. You know, have you had durian? And if you want to, if you want to become mildly exposed to durian, eat the frozen durian you can get in the Asian markets today. It's like ice cream. If you won't like it, you'll never like it, but that's the best form of it. <laughs> durian, D-U-R-I-A-N. Yes. Yes, it really stinks. It stinks worse than every, any toilet or cesspool you've ever smelled. Absolutely delicious, delicious. And it's got a little, apparently it's got a little alkaloid in it that has a mild, very, very mild narcotic effect after a while. It's wonderful. And it's legal. It's like, a, it's like getting flushed with a whole syringe full of endorphin. And it makes you sweat, and it's really wonderful stuff. That's one way to look at it. I'll tell you another way God has a know, I know has a sense of humor. I was a young man with gray hair, and I marry a woman who's yet to have a gray hair. And my children are really worried about what's going to happen to them. Because I inherited the gray hair gene, and my wife did not. I guess to be truthful, she did have me pluck out one gray hair a few years ago. Okay? But can you imagine, you know, what the angels are thinking? Hey, what's going to happen with this McLean Hadley genes? What are their children going to look like? How about that? I had 12 cavities. She's never had one yet. So isn't that interesting how, you know, the Lord put the, my Canadian genes in with this North Carolina gene. We come up with some children who may or may not be healthy. We'll see what happens. <laughs> my, our children were, were raised vegan most of the time, a vegetarian all of the time. For 10 years, they're vegan. And, you know, people who talk about where you get enough protein as a vegetarian, I just want to laugh inside because it's so easy to get protein. And, you know, both of my boys are over six feet tall. One is six foot two, weighs 180 pounds, and he's got 120 pounds of muscle. I mean, the guy looks like a, he likes to lift weight for fun. I like that because he's not doing drugs or getting involved with girls and all that stuff. You know, I like, he, he can lift all the weights he wants. Um, our daughter was raised a vegetarian, was a vegan for 10 years. He's, she's got a bit of a weight problem. She's got to exercise and watch her diet. That's fine. That's wonderful. So all these health behaviors present, if you have all four present, you have a lower risk of premature dying compared to having none of these uh, four risks present. Okay? And um, it's, both, it's true for both men and women. So just those four things. If you were to do just four things, what would they be? 
Don't, don't use tobacco. Exercise more. Eat more fruits and vegetables. Achieve near normal or normal weight. Now, one of those is most important more than others. Which one is that? Yeah, being physically active. If you guys would leave your car or airplane or boat here and walk home, I can guarantee you, you would not need to come to next year's health convention. Now, it's true, you might be dead. But if you survived that trek home, you'd be a whole lot healthier than you are today. How about whole grains? <clears throat> There's a whole host of well-documented, peer-reviewed, evidence-based journals that talk about the benefit of, of um, whole grains to lower risk of heart disease, diabetes, colorectal cancer, other bowel problems. <clears throat> well-documented, well-studied. There's no question we need whole grains. Some people, unfortunately, develop intolerance to some proteins in some grains. Um, we call that celiac disease or gluten intolerance. It's a disease that's been around forever, but it seems to be becoming more popular today in the last 10 years or so. So when you're seeing one of your very prominent health professionals one of the leaders in the church not eating whole grains. Maybe there's a medical reason for that. Let's not pick on them too much. Okay? In fact, eating whole grains reduces one's risk of heart disease by 50%. So if, if your dad died of a heart attack, or your mom, or your brother or sister, do you think you might have a slight genetic disposition to heart disease or heart attack? Maybe you've turned that gene on. Maybe you've turned that gene off. I don't know. But the point is, eating whole grains can reduce your risk of heart disease. Eating white bread versus whole wheat bread drops your risk by 44%. It really irritates me every time we have an Olympic competition come around. We get this gorgeous male and female athletes telling how important it has been for them to eat Wonder Bread to be strong and healthy. And it just irritates me because I can take a loaf of Wonder Bread, squish it down into a little tiny ball, and pop it in my mouth. I used to do that. I will not do that anymore. So recognize the power of commercials and just forget about them. Whole grains and cardiovascular disease, another study looking at um, uh, mortality and the relative risk. The more whole grains you eat, the lower your risk of, and here are three servings a day, cut your risk over half. That's a good thing. So if you can't eat wheat, there's plenty of brown rice. There's plenty of um, uh, other potato breads and um, 
uh, oat breads and other kinds of breads, uh, millet breads, and many different kinds that you can, you can still eat whole wheat. Cereal fiber and diabetes. Here's diabetes, probably the most popular disease in America. Even our children are coming down with diabetes. Why? Because we're letting their taste buds choose the food they want to eat. We never let our children choose the food they wanted to eat. If they didn't like our food, they didn't eat. They only did that once. I can't ever remember going to the store and buying a bag of candy for our children. I can't ever remember going to the store and buying uh, 24 cases of soda pop. Yet, when we buy groceries in the store and we're in the line, this is much what we see in the grocery bags, or in the grocery carts as we're going through. So we bought good fiber cereals for our children. We ate them ourselves when we can. And um, those eating 20 or 29 grams of fiber a day have a much lower risk, relative risk, of developing type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is clinically defined as adult onset diabetes. Okay? Uh, we still have uh, a pancreas that produces some insulin, but our insulin, our pancreas is tired. It may not be producing enough insulin, and the cells in our muscles and other tissues are blocking the absorption of insulin to reduce the sugar in the blood so that we can burn up the sugar and use it as food. It's a complicated thing, but the fact is, it usually didn't happen until the mid-40s or 50s. That's why it was called adult-onset type 2 diabetes. We are now getting this very much adult disease in children 10, 11, and 12 years of age. Why? It's because that child is dictating to mom and dad what they want to eat. And if left to their own design, they will eat what only tastes good and flavorful and makes them exciting and gives them abundant sources of energy. And some of us call that ADD, uh, you know, ADH, okay. Um, we can control that. We can monitor that. And there's a whole host of these kids today who are severely overweight because we bust them to school. And maybe that's a good thing because it's too dangerous to walk. But buses, busing has contributed to the demise of our young people. Now, maybe that's a good thing because it's dangerous to exercise uh, to and from school, unfortunately. But when I went to school, um, you know, I walked or rode my bicycle. It didn't matter how far away that school was. Okay? Whole grains and risk of death from any cause. Look at that, just eating whole grains. 48% less death from any cause. So there's good, strong scientific evidence to eat whole grains. Oh, and that's, that's even after adjusting 
for BMI. So it doesn't matter whether you're overweight or have high cholesterol or don't exercise. This is just whole grains. Now, what would happen if you ate whole grains and lowered your cholesterol and exercise and had a normal weight? Wow, that's about everything you can do. You may never need to see a physician then. Some of us do need to see a physician. What happens to a person who's embracing everything with gusto and doing everything right? What happens to that person when they get high blood pressure or they get breast cancer? What often happens is it totally destroys their faith in the health message. And that's unfortunate because we need to understand we live in a world where sin is evident. And even good, even good, strong, healthy people get sick. Why? Because we live in a society where we're exposed to all sorts of carcinogens and viruses and bacteria. It's not like my grandfather lived to be 95 and would never go see the doctor. You know, he didn't ride his car to go to 7-Eleven. He had to catch the horse. He had to saddle the horse or ride in that buggy. And that buggy didn't have seats made by Henry Ford <laughs> and shock absorbers made by whoever. You see? We live in a different age today. You know about whole wheat versus regular wheat? You know, the manufacturers of bread today, they get rid of 50 to 60, 80 percent of all those good nutrients in that food. You know that, right? What I, what I really like here is these essential fatty acids. This fat is what gives flavor to food, to, to bread. So. You understand the white bread, you don't eat that. You eat the whole wheat bread. What would happen if you purchased, I'm sorry, if you purchased flour and made your own bread? Does that whole wheat bread you made yourself taste a little bit better than the whole wheat bread you buy in the store? Why? It's because of this right here. And if you bought the grain, ground the grain yourself, made the bread within 30 minutes, and then ate that bread, it would even taste better. Why? Because of these essential fatty acids. When these essential fatty acids are exposed to light, air, and heat, they become changed. They're adulterated. They're not rancid. They're just changed, and they don't have that flavor that fresh, baked, whole wheat bread has. Limit foods high in animal fats and cholesterol. I like to say limit. After I've emphasized, eat nine servings of fruits and vegetables, eat three or four servings of whole grains or more, eat one or two servings of nuts and seeds, then I say, 
limit all this stuff. Well, there isn't any room left for that stuff. I don't care about that stuff. I don't have to talk about that very much. But it isn't just this that gets us in trouble. What gets us in trouble is we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables to get all those hugely powerful antioxidants and vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids. And these saturated fats, animal viruses perhaps, hydrogenated vegetable oils, these are vegetable oils that have been adulterated to taste better, uh, to, sorry, to improve shelf life. And they lose the taste, but they improve the shelf life. So you find these in cookies, cakes, and candies. We'll talk more about these in the fat class, fat lecture later this afternoon. Nuts. All the nuts are really, really beneficial except one. There's one that's deathly you should be afraid of. Do you know which one that is? It's called the donut. <laughs> I had you, didn't I? You were on the palm of my hand. I could have told you anything. I had you. All right. But many people don't eat enough nuts. They are not fattening foods. Yes, nuts are high in fat. A wonderful, delicious, godly, beneficial fat. And why should we eat good fat? So you have energy. So you have smooth, healthy skin. And you have normal production and balance of hormones. How important do you think that is? And there's a whole host of other reasons why we should eat good, healthy fats. But these nuts, studies done, this, was, this primary study was done in, um, uh, this was the Harvard study, but uh, Dr. Sabaté at Loma Linda University did the first studies, uh, Jean Sabaté, we call him the nutty, the nutty professor. But he studied nuts and looked at the Adventist health study, and he observed that those that ate nuts five or more times a week had a lower cancer mortality. Other studies have also documented um, uh, diabetes and heart disease. In fact, those individuals who ate the exact same amount of calories, some of them were nuts, other control group were not nuts, they didn't gain any more weight. They, in fact, lost weight and reduced their risk in a number of areas. So nuts and seeds are a good thing, as long as they're part of the meal and part of your caloric intake that you normally would eat. So we have a, a quart jar of nuts and seeds that we eat. I put it in the refrigerator, and we mix it up. There's all different kinds of nuts. There are no bad nuts, except which one? Donut. Donut. There are no bad nuts. There are some nuts maybe a little bit better than others, uh, but we don't know for sure because there's lots of nuts that don't want to be given to Dr. Sabaté to study because they're not, you know, he received lots of walnuts and almonds from the walnut industry and the almond industry, but 
they're all afraid to give them abundant supplies of nuts to test. But generally, all the nuts we think are fine in moderation. I've had some folks say, only eat as many nuts as you can crack with your hands. And I disagree with that, because nuts are good, healthy foods for us, eaten in balance, in moderation. Throw in some seeds. I like to have all the nuts and throw in some cashews to give it smooth and creamy flavor. The sesame seeds make it a little bit bitter, so I don't put too many of those in. And, and um, uh, all the nuts and seeds. And we get a variety in a mixture. So increase legumes, beans, nuts, plant-based foods. These are alternatives to meats and poultry. Even the lean meats and poultry that uh, we were led to believe that are healthy for us. Yes, the lean meats and poultry are healthier than the not lean, but eating more um, nuts, legumes, beans, and plant-based foods is healthier for us, and that is the objective from the U.S. Surgeon General of the American population is to eat more nuts and seeds, more plant-based dietary. Get adequate sleep. We know about that. I'm not going to talk much about that except to say less than six hours a day of sleep increases overall mortality. Now, if you can't sleep, don't, or, don't stress over it. That's just, that's just the way it is. But there may be things that you can do to increase endorphins. And one thing you can do is make sure you're out walking during the midday so your mind, through your eyes, sees the sunlight. And that reduces the hormones that produce endorphins so that when the sun goes down, you don't keep your lights on in your house until midnight so your body recognizes now's the time to produce endorphin to go to sleep. Maybe not watch the evening news. The, the evening news are extremely passionate. There's violence passion. There's sex passions. There's sympathy passions. There's all the passions evidenced on the evening news and all the TV shows as well. So if you can't go to sleep within two or three minutes of putting your head in a pillow, maybe there's some things you need to do to get yourself ready for sleep. Alcohol. We just don't recommend alcohol. Um, increases cancer, uh, risk for high blood pressure, uh, half of all fatal motor vehicle accidents, uh, significant family emotional suffering, and responsible for much premature deaths. Alcohol and breast cancer. As little as half a drink a day increases a woman's risk of breast cancer by 25%. So that's why we put a glass of wine over here. Wine is thought to be a good thing. Breast cancer. So eat regular meals. In the Good Health Practices study, uh, breakfast, breakfast skippers tend to be overweight. Frequent snacking tends to be overweight, diabetes, dental caries. Snack foods are typically high in all the things we should eat less or none of the saturated fats, the sugar, the trans fats. Ooh. 
what happens when we snack? S actually, our stomach and our digestive system should be allowed to rest. It rests every night. You know, it has an 8 or 12 hour rest in the evening. Why do we feel like at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock we've got to have something to eat? Well, you're hungry, right? And hungry is a good thing. When I get hungry, I look at the clock. And if it's a time to eat, I eat. If it's not time to eat, I don't eat. That's, that's it. Now, hunger is a sign, a good thing. A hunger means you're not sick. Hunger means you probably don't have cancer. Of course, if you have uncontrolled diabetes, you can be hungry. That's different. But hunger generally is a good thing. It means you're alive, you're strong, you're healthy. Things are working the way they should. And as long as you're not diabetic, then wait until it's time to eat. People who are happy and content live longer. And in a good health of practice of study, those that are happy and content have a lower mortality, lower premature mortality. That's a good thing. You heard Teeny and, and uh, Pastor Finley talk about this. A merry heart does good like medicine. Um, yes? Well, I, I actually agree with that principle. She said some nutritionists recommend don't wait till you're hung, wait, don't wait to eat until you get hungry because you tend to eat more. But that's because these individuals can't control that emotion of hunger. Okay? When you learn to eat properly, hunger is a stimulant for a number of things. And and you know, as long as you don't have low blood sugar or high blood sugar, hun hunger can be a wonderful mechanism to stimulate a meal, to create a meal. Now, my wife knows not to send me to the store when I'm hungry, because I tend to buy more of what I like versus what we like. Okay? Um, um, there, are, there are some that recommend eating five or six meals a day, and as long as you're your cholesterols are fine, your blood pressure is fine, your weight's fine. I don't have any particular problem with that. But neither do I have any problem with eating two or three meals a day, as long as you learn to control your emotions and recognize that hunger is a natural process and, and, and recognize that hunger doesn't mean it's time to eat, if it's not time to eat. You see? Yes? You mentioned less people should die, but it could be my one of the common symptoms of diabetes is excessive thirst, uh, excessive hunger, uh, wounds that won't heal, um, spilling sugar in the urine, having a sweet-smelling urine, and, and other issues. And so, um, you know, if you're not diabetic, if you're hungry all the time, you want to consider uh, talking to a physician about diabetes. But if you're hungry two or three times a day, that's perfectly normal. Well, that depends on your physician and what sort of treatment protocol they want you to be on. Some want you to have five or six meals a day. Some want you to have three meals a day. I've worked with many diabetics that get along just fine on three meals a day. It, it depends on the protocols that 
they want you involved in. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The ideal is to let your stomach and, and digestive system rest. Your digestive system by itself never rests because it's always going. Your intestines are always working. But, but, but your stomach um, uh, and your jejunum, the upper, upper bowel, needs to have time to recover. Yeah, the sugar's high, but the your cells are starving because they're blocking the sugar, and this is why you're hungry. Uh, it's not because you don't have any food. It's because you don't have access to the food internally. Okay, we got to close here in just a few minutes. Forgiveness is part of um, uh, the good health practices study. People who forgive easily tend to enjoy greater psychological well-being. If you, need to be, if you need forgiveness, ask for it. If you need to give forgiveness, give it. That emotion uh, is, the, 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 there's power in the physiology of forgiveness. Uh, it, when you don't forgive, it'll chew you up. Uh, people who make frequent contact with family and friends and attend church have lower mortality. Okay? Social networks, we'll talk more about these later. Spiritual health, develop a spiritual life that provides peace and direction and meaning in your life. We have an awesome, wonderful blessing in our Adventist faith of community of believers. We have a spiritual message, we have a health message, and we should never walk away from that. Those who attended church on a regular basis actually had lower risk of dying as well. Yes? Yeah, make sure everyone who registered has a manual. And everyone here, uh, talk to Catherine if you don't have a manual. OK? Churchgoers live longer. A healthy lifestyle, the bottom line, can add 10 to 15 years to your life expectancy and reduce risk of dying midlife to a quarter of that of persons with an unhealthy lifestyle. If everything you've done, though, is to take care of your heart and your lungs, and you live to be 95, but don't have the muscle strength to walk around at 95, then you're not balanced. And we'll talk more about that after lunch. So the choice is up to you. Do you want to have good health? or have poor health. It's not up to your doctor or your nurse. It's up to you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.